Hello and welcome to the Master of Demon Gorge podcast. Today, we're talking about Detective D and the curious case of the Dutch Sinologist. So, last week we talked about my former teacher, Jonathan Spence, the great British-American Sinologist. And I thought today we'd talk about another Western scholar of China, a man named Robert Hans von Gulik. Or is that von Hulik? Pardon me, I don't uh, speak Dutch. Um, but before we get to the man himself, let us talk about Cui Hark, or Xu Ke, as we call him in Mandarin. Cui Hark is one of the most influential movie directors in Hong Kong. Since the late 1970s, he has directed some of the most popular Hong Kong films ever made. In recent years, Cui Hark has made a trilogy of films set in ancient China, centered on a certain Detective D, who goes around solving impossible crimes in the manner of Sherlock Holmes. The, the titles of the films are Detective D and the Mystery of the Phantom Flame, Young Detective D, Rise of the Sea Dragon, and finally, Detective D, The Four Heavenly Kings. So, how did Cui Hark come up with this idea for an ancient Chinese Sherlock Holmes? Well, he didn't. A Dutchman did. Cui Hark came across his series of detective mysteries set in Tang Dynasty China and thought, hey, that would make a good movie. The Dutchman, as I already tipped my hand before, was Robert Hans van Hulik, or in Chinese, Gao Luo Pei. He was uh, born in the Netherlands, and he moved to Jakarta, Indonesia, with his family at the age of three. Uh, and Jakarta at the time was, of course, Batavia in the, in the Dutch East Indies. In Jakarta, he was tutored in Chinese as well as other Asian languages. After returning to the Netherlands for university and graduate school, Van Hulik joined the Dutch Foreign Service and was posted to China and Japan. Stationed in Tokyo when Japan declared war on the Netherlands in the Second World War in 1941, Van Hulik evacuated with the rest of the Dutch embassy staff to the city of Chongqing in China, which at the time served as nationalist China's wartime capital. During this time, he married a Chinese woman and became terribly interested in all aspects of Chinese culture. He studied traditional Chinese music and read plenty of classical Chinese literature. He also became an accomplished calligrapher, something I emphatically cannot do. Although, did I say Van Hulik came up with the idea of a Chinese Sherlock Holmes? Well, he was Sri Hark's source, but in truth, Van Hulik 
also got the idea from somewhere else. In 1940, while he was still stationed in Tokyo, Van Hulik came across the anonymously authored Qing Dynasty novel, Wu Zetian Si Da Qian, or The Four Famous Cases During the Reign of Wu Zetian. The novel concerned a real-life Tang Dynasty official, Di Renjie, going around solving criminal cases. Van Hulik proceeded to translate the book into English under the title Celebrated Cases of Judge D. But having translated it, Van Hulik felt that the book was lacking in some respects, uh, particularly things that we modern readers would expect from detective fictions and mystery novels. So he decided to write his own version. Through the 1950s then, he published a series of English-language detective mysteries centered on this Judge D, which were then translated back into Chinese and also Japanese. In his own words, Van Hulik produced these stories to show modern Chinese and Japanese writers that their own ancient crime literature has plenty of source material for detective and mystery stories. In other words, we didn't need to rip off Sherlock Holmes. We already had Di Renjie. Okay, but so who was this Di Renjie in real life? Well, the name Di Renjie actually remains a household name in China and Taiwan. That makes him one of the pantheon of famous mandarins throughout Chinese history, significant enough to be remembered down to even modern times. So here's the story of his life. Di Renjie was born into a family of mandarins in 630 AD during the reign of the great Emperor Taizong of the Tang. This was China's golden age. When Di Renjie was 29 years old, he tested his way into an official post as a deputy provincial judge, not a particularly high post. It was worth remembering, perhaps, that in ancient China, the judicial system was inquisitorial, not adversarial. In other words, the judges themselves were charged with discovering the truth about the cases before them, not to make decisions based on the rival presentations of prosecutors and defense attorneys or, uh, or plaintiffs and defendants. So uh, in 661 AD, when Dian was 31 years old, uh, and when he was in his post as a deputy judge, Dian was, despite being a judge, himself accused of a crime. The accusation, though, turned out to be a blessing in disguise. The Tang Empire's Minister of Public Works, Gong Bu Shangshu in the, in the, uh, in the phrasing at the time, a man named uh, Yan Li Ben, 
Yan Liben personally heard the case against D. Yan interviewed all the relevant parties, including Di Renjie himself, and in the process of doing so, Minister Yan not only determined that Di Renjie was innocent, but he was so impressed by this deputy provincial judge, by his display both of intellect and character, that he recommended him for promotion. As he rose through the ranks of the Tang judicial system, Dianjie apparently so inhaled the Chinese legal codes that he pretty much came to know everything there was to know about Chinese law at the time, whether civil, criminal, or martial. So in 675, at the age of 45, Dianjie rose to the position of Dali Sicheng, which was the Tang Dynasty equivalent of a Supreme Court Justice. And when he took this new position, he found that there was a huge backlog of unresolved cases waiting for him in his new office. Famously, in the course of one year, 676 AD, Dian resolved the entire backlog of cases, which involved some 17,000 litigants. And history books tell us, not a single one of these 17,000 litigants later complained that his decisions were in any way unfair or unjust or mistaken. So these stories of Dee's ability as a clever as well as fair-minded judge no doubt formed the foundation of the later author's desire to make him into a Chinese Sherlock Holmes. After his career as a judge, Dianjie then served as a as a provincial governor in a number of provinces and repeatedly distinguished himself in the political arena. His the fame he derived uh, from his feat as a judge solving uh, resolving 17,000 cases in one year helped him tremendously. But we can't truly understand why Dianjie came to, be, came to be remembered as one of the pantheon of great mandarins without taking note of another person who rose up the town power structure at around the same time. Her name was Wu Zetian. And her story is, frankly, even more striking than Dianjie's story. And sooner or later, I am sure, we'll do a full episode just on her. For the moment, all you need to know is that Wu Zetian started out as a young palace girl during the later reign of Emperor Taizong. She then rose to favor during the reign of Taizong's son, Emperor Gaozong, eventually marrying Emperor Gaozong, becoming one of his, one of his favorite uh, uh, concubines. Throughout the late, uh, throughout the mid-7th century, rather, Wu Zetian masterfully accumulated power within the palace walls until she became the true power behind the throne. And finally, in 690 AD, Wu Zetian did something 
utterly unique in Chinese history. And when I say unique, I mean unique. No one else ever did this, not before her, and not ever since. She declared herself emperor, not an empress, not merely a woman who happened to have married an emperor or given birth to one. No, the emperor. She became the only female emperor in Chinese history. In so doing, she gave plenty of mandarins a great deal of heartburn, for a couple of pretty important reasons. First, she was essentially a usurper, not being surnamed Li, which was the surname of the imperial family of the Tang Dynasty. She had arguably effected a revolution within the palace walls and ended the Tang Dynasty altogether. Under a traditional Confucian view of loyalty, these mandarins perhaps ought not to serve a usurper. Secondly, and very obviously, she was a woman. There was a reason no woman had ever claimed the throne in Chinese history. Under a patriarchal system, women weren't supposed to rule. They weren't supposed to do that. Now, female political leaders even today experience a certain level of sexism. Expressed in different ways, even in supposedly liberal and open-minded countries, so you can imagine what many of these seventh-century Chinese officials might have really thought of their new lady boss. At the same time, you would be wrong to adopt too much of a stereotypical view of medieval Chinese men, even if many of these mandarins. Must have been unhappy about Wu Zetian's ascension. The great majority of Tang officials continued to work for her. Wu Zetian was, in fact, quite a capable ruler. Certainly more capable than the average emperor, even if not quite good enough to rank among the best rulers in Chinese history, such as Emperor Taizong. So. Perhaps many of the mandarins recognized that it was far better to serve a capable woman than to work for a foolish man. Di Renjie was one official who had no trouble serving Wu Zetian. In time, Wu made Di Renjie her chancellor, the second most powerful individual in the empire. With a capable ruler on the throne and a brilliant chancellor by her side. China continued to enjoy a period of peace and prosperity, and a genuine friendship appeared to have developed between Wu Zetian and Di Renjie, so that they weren't only ruler and advisor, but two friends who respected each other tremendously. When Di Renjie died, Wu Zetian shed tears of genuine grief, and would not come to court for three days. Although Di Renjie was in his seventies when he died, Wu Zetian complained bitterly to heaven, "Oh why, oh why do you rob me of the pillar of my empire so early? Without him, 
my court will be as though empty. And before his death, Dianjie gave his emperor a piece of advice that would shape the course of Chinese history in a way that is perhaps difficult to comprehend. As I said, Wu Zetian was kind of a usurper. And as she grew older, the question of who would become her successor grew increasingly pressing. If she made her son with Emperor Gaozong, the crown prince, then after her, the throne would go back to the rightful ruler. The Tang Dynasty would go on effectively uninterrupted. But if she wanted to embrace the role of a usurper, she could make her nephew the son of her brother, the crown prince. Her nephew was surnamed Wu, like her, not Li. And by tradition, certainly the nephew had no right to rule. If she did that, then she would be essentially declaring the end of the Tang Dynasty. For a long time, Wu Zetian couldn't make up her mind. And in fact, she began to lean toward her nephew. It was Dianjie who convinced her that she ought to make her son the crown prince and maintain the name of the Tang dynasty. To openly embrace the role of a usurper could lead to chaos and rebellion, he told her. Whereas by abiding by tradition, she would earn the respect of the whole empire. So it was because of Dianjie that we now count the Tang, the Tang Dynasty as having lasted from 618 AD to 907, not 618 to 690. And it was because of Dianjie that we now remember Wu Zetian as one of the great Tang emperors, albeit one with an asterisk. So yes, Dianjie, Judge D, as Robert von Hulik had it, or Detective D, as Sri Hark calls him, really did go around solving criminal cases like a medieval Sherlock Holmes. But he was primarily famous for his pivotal role in Chinese history. This has been MODG. Thank you for listening.